Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman number 29, Thermidor, cover date August 1991. The penciler on this was Stan Watch, uh, Dick Giordano as inker, Daniel Vazo colorist, Todd Klein as letterer, Elisa Quitney as assistant editor, and Karen Berger as editor. Yeah, so we are back, Brent. We are back to covering Sandman. Uh, we should, though, before we get into it, I think we really ought to <laughs> talk about what that means because we are covering Sandman in issue order rather than the order of the collected volumes. And so what that means is that we're going to only be reading four issues from the collection Fables and Reflections. Then we'll take a break from The Sandman to go cover some short fiction and also some adjacent topics. And then we'll be back for the big story arc of uh, A Game of You. But we will, of course, come back to the rest of the stories in Fables and Reflections when we get there in issue order. And when we have done all of them, which will be years, literally, but when we have done all of them, we will have a uh, very out-of-place wrap-up episode in order to talk about the introduction to this volume. Uh, There's also a forward to this volume. We'll pick some favorites and so on. But uh, uh, for now, I think it is enough to say that, yeah, we are back. We are back to Sandman. And this one, I think, is actually a pretty big deal of an issue. It's laying some groundwork for future stories. We can talk about that as we uh, we come to it. And also, this issue is going to take us back, though, as well. It's going to take us back to a minor character whom we have encountered before. It is Johanna Constantine, whom we met in Men of Good Fortune in the 1789 segment. And then in the 1889 segment, Dream told Hobb that he encountered Johanna Constantine again and that she did some important work for him. But that is all that we knew about it until now. We are finally going to get that story. I am psyched for it. And in fact, it gets even better than that because the issue opens in Johanna Constantine's home in Witch Cross, England. And we have also encountered Witch Cross before, right? This is all the way back in the very first issue where it is the home of Roderick Burgess and also therefore the site of Dreams Imprisonment. Now, Brent, I cannot really tell from the art, but do you think that this house is actually meant to be the same house that Roderick Burgess is in? It's, it's. Do you think this building, this house, is Fawny Rig? Uh, it is uh, actually that house. Um, Leslie Klinger in the annotated Sandman gives us some quotes from the script from Neil Gaiman, um, in which he notes that it is the same house. More wings and bits were added in 1810 by Lady Johanna and in 1875 by the industrialist from whom Burgess later bought the house. So this, in fact, is the house that uh, so it it changes by the time that we see it in issue one um, with additional wings having been added. But this, in fact, is the same house at Witch Cross. That's absolutely fantastic. And of course, we don't get any sense of that in issue one because Gaiman hadn't thought of this yet. But it's a fun bit of of retconning to realize that Dream has actually been imprisoned in a house that he has uh, been in before and, in fact, uh, taken some real active uh, agency in in hiring Johanna Constantine. And in fact, actually, maybe we should move into that now because this first page where we are at Witch Cross is really just the setup. And Dream 
visits Johanna. He reminds her of their first meeting, and she now knows who he really is. She's figured that out on her own because, you know, she's an occult detective, so she did some occult detecting. And the deal here, though, is that he has a mission for her that he cannot perform himself. And Dream says that he cannot involve himself directly because it is a family affair. I think we can come back to that at the end when we've learned what the affair is. But the point is that Johanna here is a mercenary, and so she has a price. And what Dream offers her is, and here I'm quoting, what it is in his power to give her. Now, we don't get anything more specific than that. I mean, not on this page, but also not anywhere else in this issue. And I have to wonder then, Brent, do you know what this means? I mean, does this come up somewhere else in comics? It doesn't as far as I've read, but uh, as you and I had talked about offline, uh, I have not read the later Hellblazer Johanna Constantine run where that may be answered. So uh, I don't know, but there's always something that a Constantine is up to um, and always kind of some bit that they might be getting. I do want to mention um, Klinger also gives us a note from the script here in which Neil indicates that uh, when Dream comes on Johanna in her study, um, the script explicitly says that she is reading um, Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is a, 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 a little note that I thought you'd appreciate, Glenn. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, and that is hot off the presses. It's actually not even finished being written and published. I, I don't think at this point it's uh, begins being published in the 1770s. I guess does he does finish publishing that in the 1790s. So possibly she actually is reading a complete set of it now for the first time. But but hot off the press. I mean, that's very, very current uh, current of her. That's it's basically pop culture <laughs> in uh, the late 1790s <laughs> or the mid 1790s. That's uh, that's fantastic. I love that note. We can always count on a, a Constantine to be uh, a hip to the pop culture, whether it's the <laughs> forefront of punk rock or the latest uh, history treatise. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And I, I should correct you when you when you have said, or maybe not correct, but emend uh, when you say that you have not read the Hellblazer special that is about Johanna Constantine, because the, the correct way to say that is yet, because that is one of the uh, uh, adjacent bits that we will be doing when we have concluded these four issues from Fables and Reflections. We will cover that. It might even be the, the first episode that we do after we've concluded these four issues. Uh, uh, because, of course, people who have uh, listened to our Sandman TV episode know that uh, I really love <laughs> Johanna Constantine and cannot get enough. So I'm pretty psyched for that. All right, well, let's get to the story proper here. This is a story that is set during the French Revolution. I don't think that we need a big lesson on the French Revolution, but before we get to the story, I will offer, a, I guess, a few reminders about what the revolution was. And what this was, was the overthrow of the French king, Louis XVI, and also his wife, Marie Antoinette, Initially, the idea was to establish a constitutional monarchy akin to what the UK had, or Great Britain, as people would have called it at the time. But then the idea after that was to establish a constitutional republic. And then, really, after that, things got out of control. Uh, then Napoleon stepped in and became the emperor, so things didn't really work out quite the way that people had planned, though there were significant changes, I will say. One of the phases here, and that was a really succinct way to talk about the French Revolution, but one of the phases here was the Reign of Terror, which lasted really just shy of a year. It started in late 1793, and this story is set near the very end of the Terror in the summer of 1794. And the terror was 
a, a formal policy of the Committee of Public Safety or Committee for Public Safety, which was really in charge of the whole government at this point, even though that's clearly not what it says on the box. Nonetheless, it was actually the government. And the terror really was a series of public executions, I mean, loads of them, uh, and also some pretty serious business massacres of people. These were all carried out in the interest of security against political prisoners, also carried out against priests and uh, sympathizers of priests and various political prisoners and so on. And so that's, of course, how this came to be the purview of the Committee for Public Safety. But in all, about 17,000 people were killed during the Reign of Terror. And so, in short, this was a time when it was really easy to get yourself guillotined. And that is the France that Johanna is going to have to navigate in this story, and specifically, really, the Paris that Johanna is going to have to navigate in this story. Now, we can talk about this more when we talk about the uh, title of the issue, but I do want to mention that at this point in the script, as she goes to France, we get a slightly different discussion of the date because we get that it is the sixth Thermidor year two. Uh, Leslie Clinger notes in the annotations that there's probably an error that it should have been year three here, given that there was a change at one point of a resetting of when the first year was or was not. But the reason why it is Thermidor is as part of this reign of terror um, and part of this revolution, there was a decision uh, to uh, retitle the months of the calendar um, and re-actually allocate how many days are in a month and how many hours are in a day and a number of other things. Um, and part of this was to throw off kind of older things and particularly things that reference um, gods or royal personages. And so getting rid of what would have been the month of July and instead is Thermidor um, so that they are no longer making reference to uh, Julius Caesar in any way, shape or form was an intentional thing by the revolution. Right, because Julius Caesar, uh, a monarch, and uh, well, we're anti-monarch in the revolution. Julius Caesar also becomes a god, and uh, we're anti-god here in the French <laughs> Revolution as well. So, uh, double, doubly condemned there to to get out of the calendar. And of course, obviously, Thermidor. I mean, you can just hear like therm as in thermal or thermometer hot. It means hot, right? This is the hottest part of the year is the idea. Uh, fortunately, this is a change that did not stick. Though there were other types of changes to ways of measuring things that came about as a result of the French Revolution that have stuck with us. But uh, as you say, Brent, we can talk about that more when we do our, our segment on the title, because we still have not actually gotten to the, well, the story here, the heart of the story here. So <laughs> let's get to it. Uh, Johanna is in Paris. She's out after dark. And when she is stopped by some soldiers, uh, they want to know what is in her bag. And what's in her bag is a severed human head, because, you know, that's what you carry around with you after dark in French Revolution Paris. But obviously, that's a strange thing to be carrying around. I mean, even when thousands of people are being guillotined, it is still a strange thing to be carrying around. But Johanna has a story about how this head is the head of an aristocrat who had raped her sister. I should say she's in disguise here. She's pretending to be a French peasant. She's undercover, I guess is actually really the word, not disguise. Uh, she's undercover. But that story is just that. It's a, a story because this head is actually the severed head of Orpheus, and it's not dead. Orpheus's head is very much alive. And because it has actually been quite a while, I mean, been a while in terms of issues, but an even bigger while, I think, in terms of our episodes on the Sandman, Brent. Uh, can you remind listeners where we have encountered Orpheus in Sandman before? 
Orpheus has uh, been mentioned before as the son of Sandman and Calliope. And I think we know that they are uh, not on speaking terms. And I think that might be all that we know so far, unless I'm forgetting something else. No, I think that that's all that we know. And of course, we've learned all of that in the issue, Calliope. But yeah, that that is all we know at this point. And so this, of course, is backstory to to that. So that's where we're, we're fleshing this out. I should say, I guess, maybe as well, a few things about Orpheus in literature and religion before we carry on, right? Because Orpheus is you know, not someone who Gaiman has made up. He is a real figure in ancient Greek and also ancient Roman religion, where he was a great musician and a great poet. And today, I think in our culture, our pop culture, maybe especially, we really remember Orpheus best for having gone into the underworld in order to rescue the spirit or, or, or shade or ghost of his wife who had met an untimely death. And Orpheus succeeded in persuading Hades, the god of the underworld, to let Eurydice come back to the world of the living. But uh, then he screwed it up and at the last moment uh, lost her again. But in the ancient world, at least before Ovid, the, the Roman poet Ovid, uh, that was really not what Orpheus was known for. I mean, that was a story that people would have known. We have art that depicts it, but we actually don't have that in literature. And before Ovid writes it down in the Metamorphoses, and so, as far as we can tell, really, in the ancient world, Orpheus was really known for his own death as a strange kind of religious martyr. Orpheus, depending on the the source, the, the story that we're reading, Orpheus became a kind of strange monotheist who would only worship Apollo. And as a result of this, the followers of, of Dionysus, who are called uh, Mynads in, in Greek, uh, Gaiman uses the Latin term for them later in this issue. But at any rate, these followers of Dionysus uh, ripped Orpheus to shreds with their bare hands, leaving only his head and his head didn't die from this. He could still talk and could still sing. That head floated away. Again, here the story diverges based on what text you're reading, but the head floated away, met various fates. Obviously, as well, even though this is not the big part for our pop culture, this is the part of the Orpheus story that really concerns Gaiman here, because we've we've got the head still very much alive. And uh, I love this. Orpheus, as a teenager especially, Orpheus was my absolute favorite of the characters from uh, ancient Greek literature, ancient Greek religion. And I was, uh, I remember being viscerally excited when I encountered him in Sandman for the first time. And I felt pretty giddy still here today encountering him again. I mean, it helps with the reveal, right? Um, where it is a head being pulled from a sack, which is just, it's just one hell of a reveal for a character is. And as you said, like, you know, it, there are many heads floating about, um, Paris and about France at this point, but still it's startling. Um, the fact that the flesh mirrors that of Morpheus, his father, where it is, uh, all pale white. Um, it's just, it's a startling thing to see. Um, and then more startling by the, what we see then with the, he's got a little earring. And after Johanna tells her story, uh, they nonetheless decide to slice off part of his ear, which just seeing, um, that kind of violence done to even a, uh, the severed, perhaps dead head, uh, nonetheless causes you to, uh, at least causes me to feel some amount of, uh, kind of squeamishness in terms of, uh, how painful that might be, uh, even if I understand at this point, 
if I don't understand this to be the actual head of Orpheus, if I just understand this to be a severed head that uh, is perhaps no longer feeling anything still, um, it, it causes, uh, there's a lot of emotions going on in these two pages, I guess. There are. I mean, I think when we encounter these guards and they're challenging Johanna, I mean, to me, just the feeling of the setup was that she was in danger of sexual assault here. And mm-hmm. uh, the yes. fact that the the only violence that actually happens is that uh, an earring is ripped out of Orpheus's earlobe felt like we got off kind of easy, though I, I hear your squeamishness and I, I share it, but I felt there was real serious danger here going in, going into this. I mean, I think that that unfortunately is frequently the the danger that women are in. Um, I mean, men sometimes as well, but frequently women are in when uh, accosted by two men um, who are in positions of power uh, and no one else is watching. Then that's not a great scenario. Um, and I think that that may actually play into the reason why she tells the made up story she tells about whose head this is, where it's a royal that has um, sexually assaulted her sister. Because it's also then conveying to these revolutionaries that uh, they wouldn't want to behave the way a royal would and sexually assault someone, right? Um, And so we don't actually – that's all – none of that's text, but that's kind of my interpretation of her going with that particular story is A, completely believable that a royal might do that and particularly uh, that a revolutionary would think that a royal would do that. And so it uh, sounds like a believable story. But additionally, it also helps, you know, signify to the would-be attackers um, who are trying very hard to not appear as if they are the same uh, terribleness as those who they had overthrown, although in many ways they are just as terrible, um, <laughs> then uh, that kind of works as well. At a subconscious level, I think she's playing some mind tricks with them because Johanna Constantine is uh, very smart. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale. I mean, she's also saying, I have actually gone out on a mission of vengeance to to avenge someone in my family who was sexually assaulted. And uh, you don't want to do that to me because you already know that I will come out on a mission of vengeance. And if not me, maybe someone else in my family or someone else from my village. We take these things very seriously. And uh, I hadn't thought about that as the subtext for the story before, Brent, but it's it's spot on and is uh, actually probably great advice if you find yourself accosted by guards in the French Revolution, for you know, which could happen to any of us, I guess. So uh, yeah, that's an excellent reading of, of that story. Well, let's go talk about the mission that Johanna is on and what she is doing for for Dream is attempting to recover Orpheus. Though right now we don't really understand where Orpheus was or what he was doing. But at any rate, the mission is to get him out of France. Now, Johanna has stolen him from someplace, though I should say he's clearly on board with his mission. So maybe stolen is not the right word. Rescue is actually probably the better <laughs> term here. So yeah, she's rescued him. But officials, and, and really officials at the highest level of the Committee for Public Safety, are looking for Orpheus. They are also looking for Johanna, whom they know all about. And we get a bit of a tour of the terror here when Johanna is arrested by uh, Louis-Antoine de Saint-Jean, who uh, more or less was, I guess, something like the district attorney of the Reign of Terror, though he was way more, to be clear, he was way more two-faced than Harvey Dent. And also, it turns out that Sanju and Johanna have been lovers, but now he's arrested her and he's taken her to the former palace where they... uh, keep the very soon-to-be-guillotined political prisoners. This actually includes Thomas Paine, who's a, a figure quite important in American and British history as well. 
And Gaiman actually treats us to some of Paine's most famous words here. These are taken from his pamphlet, The American Crisis. And I'm actually just going to read this because I think people will recognize some of these phrases, even if they didn't know that this is where they came from. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of our men and women. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. And so, yeah, I'm sure that people have uh, encountered those phrases before in you know, some bit of pop culture, even if not necessarily a history class. But Brent, I had actually a really strange experience with this that uh, has me wondering if my whole life may not actually just be one big dream, which is that I did my first read of the issue for the show during Finch's nap time. And then that same night at bedtime, we read the Magic Treehouse book called Revolution on Sunday, in which the kids, Jack and Annie, get to hear George Washington recite this exact same speech to his soldiers. And it was really just (laughs) uncanny all by itself. But then... As recording day drew closer, we read another Magic Treehouse book in which Jack and Annie travel back in time and have to perform in the original production of A Midsummer Night's Dream as fairies. And so (laughs) reading this, this is all actually, I think, felt a little bit like uh, something has been trying to tell me someone to quote or at least paraphrase John Constantine. It was really, really bizarre and uncanny for me this week. Well, I think part of it is also just that um, in American culture, it's hard to get too far from Thomas Paine, uh, just because so many of his ideas that he has in Common Sense uh, from 1776 kind of fuel the revolutionary fervor of this country. And then uh, he's just very, very quotable. Um, and he was uh, imprisoned in, in, in France at this time. Uh, this comic kind of gives us a story that uh, not, we're not sure is quite true about uh, uh, whether at one point he would have been executed, but someone smudged off the thing on the door. I think that's a, a Neil Gaiman creation as far as I'm aware. But at this time, he was working on drafting The Age of Reason, which he published later. So uh, and he eventually – he was in France actually until 1802, and then Thomas Jefferson invited him to return to America. Uh, and he died in New Jersey in 1809. Right. And and actually, this is what Thomas Paine is doing here in the jail. He's asking, you know, has word come from America? And Sanju says it, it doesn't matter. No word is, is coming. The Americans don't want anything to do with him either. And he summarizes Paine's value as being useful in uh, the, at the beginning of a revolution, right? That he's useful as a rabble rouser. But then once the revolution or a revolution is underway, you don't want rabble rousers. That's when you want order. And so it's time for Thomas Paine to be executed. But he is going to be spared, uh, we're going to find out, because of the events of this issue. I mean, events of or actions of Dream and also of Orpheus and Johanna Constantine in this issue, which uh, also obviously is something Neil Gaiman is making up. But it's a great bit of historical irony here, kind of a double sense in which uh, Payne ought to have been executed, but but was but was not and got to go die comfortably in the uh, the mid Atlantic of the of the United States. But all right, let's uh, get back to the the real story here. And just to summarize where we are, because we are taking our time getting through this, Johanna Constantine is trying to rescue the severed head of Orpheus, who is Dream's son, but she has been arrested after hiding Orpheus's head somewhere. And it 
does not look like she's going to be able to get out of this jam at this point. At least I didn't feel like she was going to. And this is actually now when we come to the title page, which shows us Johanna's cell, also begins giving us some handwritten text from her journal. And we learn here that she had pretended to be a French peasant and seduced Sanju in order to learn where Orpheus's head was. And it turns out that Orpheus was in a crypt. I will come back to that in a moment. And Johanna rescued him really rather easily. But at this point, Maximilien Robespierre enters the story and also enters Johanna's cell. He is probably, Robespierre, I mean, he is probably one of the three or four names from the French Revolution that most people know. So I won't say much about him other than that he's really in charge around here. He was, generally speaking, the architect of the terror. And and Gaiman has actually had Sanju describe Robespierre as a true believer in the values of the revolution. And we see that here in his direct speech, he, because he knows all about Orpheus's head and he wants it back so that he can destroy it. Because as we talked about with the, the calendar business, destroying objects of superstition and objects of veneration are a part of what the revolution is all about, or at least a part of what the reign of terror is all about. But here's the question that I have for you, Brent, for this part of the issue, which is just where was Orpheus? <laughs> like, where was this crypt and why was he there? I don't think we get an answer in the issue. And maybe you know an answer somewhere else in, in comics, but even if there isn't one, I, we, we can maybe take some guesses here. Yeah, I don't think we get an answer at all in this issue. Certainly, um, we, spoiler, will encounter Orpheus again and get more of his story and backstory. But I kind of interpret it to be that along with uh, many other religious artifacts over time um, or pieces of art of some kind, which I guess a severed head in some ways might be, uh, you know, kind of or holy items. Uh, they might be things that are either uh, either publicly or in private collections kind of traded or absconded with over time, you know, during the crusades or any other point that at some point someone happened to have the opportunity to steal Orpheus's head from wherever it was, um, in Greece and bring it, um, to France eventually, maybe not directly. Uh, and so it must've just been in someone's, I'm imagining it's in some, my head cannon for this again, I, we may have an answer that we get later um, that I'm forgetting, but uh, my headcanon for this is that some aristocrat at some point uh, purchased or stole this head from maybe someone else who may have purchased or stolen it from someone else. It may be several lines down the chain, and that's kind of where particularly uh, items of cultural significance often end up in uh, private residences, if not museums. Right. I think what you're looking for here, Brent, is the Fourth Crusade uh, from the early 13th century. This is when French, uh, medieval French aristocrats actually conquered the Byzantine Empire, which is to say Greece, and so would have had access to, to this. Many, many, many objects of art and veneration were looted from the Byzantine Empire at that point, including uh, much of what decorates Venice now was actually looted from the Byzantine Empire during the Fourth uh, the fourth Crusade in the early 13th century. So that, I think, is probably would, would be the best backstory here, or like the most appropriate backstory for this. But still, I, I'm unclear about you know, centuries later where Orpheus's 
head actually is and what it's doing. I mean, I guess for one, we should say that we do know that, uh, I mean, we're going to find out at the end of this issue, but also it's just part of the tradition from ancient Greek literature and religion that Orpheus's head is enshrined in a temple. He has priests who care for him. He continues to actually be regarded as something of a, a prophet and a great uh, artist, musician, someone to, to consult. And so we're going to find out at the end of the issue, I think, that we might have a question about it, that some order of priests like that still exists. So certainly fine believing that that still existed in the 13th century as well. But the text here says that he's found in a crypt here in Paris. And crypt, I think, is a word that we often colloquially use to just mean any kind of underground place, and in fact, usually even a creepy underground place. Maybe here uh, we might invoke the HBO TV series from our youth, uh, Tales from the Crypt, uh, where which was just a horror anthology show. But crypt is really an underground uh, chapel, underground burial place, right? So it's a place where uh, beneath a church, probably a big cathedral, where you would have uh, some vaults and you would have some important people, like the bodies of some important people, people from the, the church who were sanctified in some way, their, their relics down there, and some chapels for worship and veneration. And so, yeah, I guess that's the sense that I had, is that this is where Orpheus's head is, that he's actually underneath some Christian church in the crypt being regarded as some kind of holy figure. And presumably the people who have placed him here are well aware that he's alive and like the priests of this church, or possibly a monastery, I suppose, actually like talk with Orpheus and so on. That That's my sense of this, that even though we get you know no indication of that in the text. Yeah. I mean, that could be the case, or uh, at times, particularly when you've got elements of religiosity among an aristocracy, they might have a private crypt. So I wasn't sure if it was, you know, part of, you know, private as in under a particular, like under a palace or uh, someone's mansion of some kind, rather than under a, an abbey or a church specifically, that it might just be some kind of private crypt um, for an aristocratic family that they at some point had gotten this relic, um, either taken directly uh, by their uh, family members in the past, or they'd come in. They've come into purchase of it, um, and part of that, I'm, my head canon, is just because, you know, as we talked about earlier with Burgess, uh, here we have someone of wealth in England who uses that wealth to collect items to then seek to increase his own power, and so. Um, but yeah, I think that either way. He is in uh, the head is somehow being held, possibly in a revered state, possibly just, you know, for the benefit of uh, whoever the owner might be. And given the what is going on with the destruction of religious uh, relics, um, there is a need then for the head to be removed from France as quickly as possible, which seems to be the instigating factor for uh, Sandman coming to Johanna Constantine to accomplish that. Yeah, this is a real sad feature of the French Revolution, which is that uh, today in France, most of the medieval relics have actually been destroyed. They were destroyed during the revolution. Most of the reliquaries were as well, reliquary being the place where relics are, are kept. Though many actually did survive, many of the reliquaries did survive or were simply remade. But you can go into churches today that will have you know their patron saint or the, the important relics there. Um, they don't actually have the relics anymore, but they've made 
create a new reliquary and still use that as part of the the veneration uh, of the church and and uh, kind of carry on as if the relics were still are still in there. It is a real sad part of the the French Revolution, this destruction of these cultural artifacts. Uh, and speaking of reliquaries, maybe that's uh, something else I should talk about a little bit here just in terms of thinking about where Orpheus was because the construction of reliquaries, which could just be like a kind of fancy box, but also frequently whole churches were built to serve as houses for or homes for relics that were coming back from the the east on crusades uh, the most famous uh, probably also physically the biggest but the most famous of them certainly in France uh is the Saint-Chapelle in Paris constructed by uh Louis the Ninth or Saint Louis the Saint Saint Louis uh, there to serve as the home for the very important relics that he um, actually was intending to bring back. He built it before he even actually had them. And in fact, I was even wondering if Saint Chapelle might actually be where Orpheus wound up somehow. That in fact he was in possession, not just of some like random aristocrat, but actually was in the possession of the, the French royal household in some way. But again, you know, we just don't, we don't have that specificity. So there's a lot we could do there with headcanon and fan fiction. But before we leave this topic behind, I want to say one more thing about uh, what I think Gaiman is doing here. And I, I like where you're going, Brent, with this and really kind of trying to nudge me to thinking that this is kind of a, a cult business, that it's not really about religion or worship. It's really something more akin to Roderick Burgess than it is something akin to, say, Christian monks. But Orpheus is actually an important figure in Christianity, specifically early Christianity, because there actually is a lot of overlap, a lot of parallel between the Orpheus story and the Christ story. And in early Christian art, or maybe what I should say is art from early Christianity, from the first centuries of Christianity, it's actually very difficult to distinguish. In fact, it's really impossible to distinguish whether an image on a sarcophagus or a tombstone, some other sort of burial art, funerary art, is actually an image of Orpheus or an image of Christ, because early Christians were simply using images of Orpheus to stand in for Christ. Uh, and also not just in funerary art. This actually shows up in other types of art in early churches as well. In fact, even pretty deep into late antiquity, we get images that we know for sure are meant to be depicting Christ in churches, but that are are just Orpheus. They just look like Orpheus looks in pagan Roman art. And so I suspect this is something that Gaiman knows full well, and Gaiman really loves religious syncretism. This is a small instance of it. And so I kind of just feel like uh, Gaiman is playing here with some idea of Orpheus actually being a figure in Christianity and you know some order of monks or possibly the you know private priests for the French royal family actually having access to like the living maybe not breathing but the living speaking singing head of Orpheus as part of their their religion as part of their veneration and worship i i think that's something that would appeal to game and it certainly appeals to me so i think that's really where my headcanon is well i mean i think that makes sense to to at least partially um even if not completely orpheus as the literal son, son of Morpheus and Calliope here, actually, you know, an existent being in this universe that we have is uh, a storyteller. Um, and, and Neil Gaiman very much uh, likes to focus his stories on storytellers and on the power that they have and 
the use and misuse that can come from that, which we can talk a little bit more when we wrap up the issue. Um, but I think that there's a lot of themes there and there's no reason why if you literally have the head of Orpheus that can speak or sing, um, in a powerful way that can move you in any number of ways, wh- why would you not have some reverence for that? Yeah, I think there's a, a, a subtle Indiana Jonesification of the head of Orpheus going on in your description there, kind yeah. of thinking of the head of Orpheus as something like the Ark of the Covenant as it appears in Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that. But but yeah, I think this is certainly something that that doesn't have to challenge our post-Reformation conceptions of religious purity or doctrinal purity or really practical purity, I, I guess. And yeah, I don't have any trouble believing yeah. that well, uh, medieval Christians, especially medieval Christian monks or priests would have any difficulty accepting that uh, there's an animate head and that this is actually the head of someone they know about from literature. And a, part of the history of this and probably related to the adoption of Orpheus in art um, and interweaving it with uh, Christianity, particularly early Christianity, is likely there's a couple of factors that are going into play there, right? There's kind of the appropriation of a culture's figures and signifiers to help get people within that culture on board with your new idea, um, right? To say like, no, no, this isn't that different from what you already are doing. See, these things are related, right? You hook things up and you kind of expand your you know, universe in that way um, without having to people to completely get rid of things. Uh, and in contrast, Trust to what we see that the reign of terror is trying to do with religion. It's also a way to protect those things as well, right? If I wanted to, if I was the caretaker for the head of Orpheus and someone came knocking at my door from insert religion here because they think that I have some kind of outside relic that is not, I would immediately come up with a story of why it hooks into their actual faith and why they should also be protecting it. Right. Um, which may actually be something that may have been something that those who wanted to protect some of these particularly works of art may have intentionally done. And I, this is pure speculation on my part, but it, it could be that when someone came to destroy a particular sculpture, it was just like, no, no, let me hook that into why it's part of your particular faith person with a sledgehammer so that I can protect the art. Uh, in addition to me using it for someone who is part of the culture the art originates from to help sell it for them um, and kind of appropriate it for that purpose. And I mean, in, in reading the story and I, had, I vaguely recalled the plot line for this comic, but I had forgotten and I have not really thought all that much of the reign of terror on my normal basis, but in the discussion we've had so far and we'll continue to have, it's caused me to think a lot of, danger of the mob um, and kind of what can become of tyrants that arise. But also I've been thinking a lot of images that we've had um, plastered in Western media over the last particularly three decades of destruction being done in behalf of, in the name of religion uh, outside the Western world of kind of historic artifacts um, that may have some religious significance in the Middle East and also in um, kind of Southeast Asia and kind of being aghast at that. But I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, Western Europe also has a history of doing this um, itself when, you know, people who should not be in charge of making such decisions, um, particularly people who are, you know, not not terribly old. Uh, St. Jude's to this time is like 26, I think. 
um, in terms of understanding the reverence of kind of not just destroying signifiers um, of prior religious or cultural aspects, but finding ways perhaps to protect them as you can when they are actually historical objects as opposed to faux historical objects. But that's a whole other diatribe. So uh, let me stop there. Well, we'll come back to some of this when we actually meet these priests at the end of the issue. And uh, mm-hmm. I have, I guess, here really taken us quite far away from what's going on on the page. But before we get back to that, we have some news to share with our listeners. In fact, we have a ton of news to share since we were last covering Sandman. We won't dish out all of that today. Today, we just want to let you listeners know that we have concluded our bonus series on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing that we did over on Patreon. And so if you are into Alan Moore, into Swamp Thing, or if you just want more Vertigo Comics talk, we hope you will check that out. You can find us on patreon.com slash Media to join us, get access to those episodes from that series. But of course, also, if you join us on Patreon, you'll, uh, well, you'll be really helping us out, really be helping us stay on the air. And Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, for those of you who are not familiar as much with it, really set the tone and the bar, a very high bar, for what horror in DC Comics would look like going into the 80s um, that very much directly inspired um, Neil Gaiman when he approached uh, Sandman. And when we look at some of the horrific elements uh, in this particular issue – very much reads as the kinds of thing that um, you, you might encounter in a swamp thing, um, not just a, a guy who is leafy green who uh, lives in a swamp. Right. And of course, Constantine as a character owes its existence to the swamp thing. And so that's how we have gotten here as well. Look, we just had a blast covering those issues of, of swamp thing. So I do hope people will will check those out. It was really just a, a lot of fun. But yeah, let's get back to the matter at hand here, because where we have broken, uh, Robespierre is going to execute Johanna if she does not tell him where she has hidden Orpheus's head. So this is pretty dire for Johanna. She, of course, is staying silent, but Dream visits her in her dreams. That's what he does, right? And he has a plan, though we don't really learn specifically what it is. We get some broad outlines that it's going to have something to do with Orpheus singing, because that's what Orpheus does. But next, we find ourselves a few hours into the future. Uh, Robespierre has figured out that Johanna has hidden Orpheus's head amongst a pile of guillotined heads that shortly will be burned. I say figured out, but actually it's something that came to him in a dream. So really, what I should say is that Dream told him this is actually part of the, the plan that has been hatched. And Robespierre now has taken Johanna with him to this pile of guillotined heads because he's still going to need her to tell him which head in this massive pile of heads is the one that he's looking for. And of course, that is fine by her because, well, there's a plan. And the plan is for Orpheus to sing. It's for him to use his magical singing on them and for Johanna to cover her ears. This is actually another place where this felt a lot like Raiders of the Lost Ark, I guess, uh, where it's you know covering your eyes there. Here it's covering your ears. But still, even with her ears covered, she's aware of Orpheus's music. And I should be clear, too, that it's not just Orpheus. This is really the, the part of the plan here, because the other severed heads that are actually all quite dead. These other severed heads now join in as a ghastly chorus, and it's really, really cool. 
And when Orpheus is done, Robespierre and also the other baddies who are down here with them, they're all frozen, maybe hypnotized, I, I guess. And so Johanna grabs Orpheus and runs for it. And at this point, then we're going to get two codas. Let's just talk about the first one, then we can pause and have a little bit of conversation about this. Uh, so in this first coda, Robespierre and Sanju are themselves guillotined just two days later. And the day in between, the day between the singing and the guillotining, Robespierre found himself unable to deliver a speech to the National Convention, where prior to this, he had been a master orator. And this failure, this freezing up, I don't know, maybe a kind of stage fright, this made it possible for another political faction to seize power. And that is actually more or less accurate to what you know really transpired. But my sense here, Brent, is that Gaiman is pinning this loss of charisma on the song. Is, is that your sense as well? And if it is, how do you think that like works metaphysically? The parallel I see here in this story is that Orpheus's song has a similar effect on Robespierre and uh, Saint Juice um, that dream speech to the serial convention has to the participants, where they think they're living in a dream of their own creation. Uh, it's a nightmare for everyone that they encounter, um, and uh, Sandman ends that dream. Right. And they're confronted with it. We see them, um, kind of standing, um, kind of expressionless. But in the initial panel where we see them listening to the song, they, our eyes are wide and they, uh, are crying. Um, and I took that to be that they are kind of being shown kind of how terrible they really are. So they're being awakened from their dream to kind of understanding their own terribleness. And it's that. I'm t my headcanon is that when giving the speech then a day later, it's that they can't quite put behind themselves their new self-awareness of the fact that, you know, their, their dream is a nightmare and that they are not the rulers of their own destiny here and they are not, you know, beyond the reach of things because they've also experienced something that literally is in this case kind of a holy thing um, that is – Causing them to understand that despite how much they want to destroy all that might be holy or religious or have order to it, there are things that are more powerful than themselves. And so they are made small in that sense. Uh, and again, I see a parallel with the attendees of the serial convention as they walk out to that parking lot. But uh, uh, did, did you see a similar parallel or um, anything? I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I think that's absolutely brilliant reading of this. I think that's a, a genius analysis of what's happening here. It's it's dream in all of the senses that we know dream exists, right? That it's it's hope, it's imagination, it's yearning, it's your worldview, your belief in what the world is like and what your place in it is. And yeah, we've seen him shatter that with the serial killers. And yeah, I think that's exactly what's happened here now. And in fact, that's why it matters so much, right? That Sanju tells us earlier in the issue that Robespierre is a true believer, because this is really only going to work on a true believer to have your belief shattered. Sanju doesn't really believe in anything. So like, that's not going to work on him, but it doesn't have to because his fate is just so connected to Robespierre that when you know Robespierre is overthrown and a new faction is put in place, Robespierre and all of his lieutenants and so on are going to you know find themselves and, and did find themselves guillotined as well. Yeah, I think that's a great reading. I think that's exactly what's happening here. That's uh, that's that's really opened this up for me. I love that. 
And looking at Klinger's um, kind of footnotes regarding Robespierre and uh, Sanjus, as well as Highbender's Sandman Companion discussion, uh, we had an interview with Neil Gaiman regarding kind of research for this. Neil notes that he had read a number of things about the, the, the terror and that he also was reading the, an early version of the Encyclopedia Britannica the 11th edition, uh, in which he greatly enjoyed the fact that he read the article on the French revolution by someone who clearly hated Robespierre. And then he read the biographical entry for Robespierre himself by someone who clearly idolized Robespierre. Um, and he loved the cognitive dissonance is what Neil said about that. And he also noted that after this story was published, a reader sent um, them their high school thesis that tried to point out that Robespierre was a great man and so on. Um, and Neil couldn't understand why he bothered. Um, I could have read, written something about how Robespierre was a great man too, but that wasn't the tale that I was telling. I needed a story in which he wasn't. And indications are that St. Drew very much is someone who uh, hitched himself to the wagon of Robespierre. I mean, lots of people were trying to do that because you didn't want to be guillotined, um, but very much taking advantage of that. There is a quote that in the issue when St. Drew's is uh, taking Johanna to the prison. He says to her, liberty is a bitch who must be bedded on a mattress of corpses. And that actually is a quote that is attributed around the same time to St. Just. So that is uh, very much um, in line with the kind of person he was. <laughs> so very practical minded in terms of uh, self-serving in his way. Yeah, just a, a note for listeners: if you have a time machine, don't go, don't go back to the French Revolution. That's just, this is a terrible, this is a terrible situation. And I think Gaiman has done a fantastic job of of capturing that here. I I am not someone. I mean, I should say for listeners who perhaps aren't aware, I'm a trained historian. I work part time as a history professor. I'm a medievalist, but I also find quite a bit about modernity and also antiquity really fascinating. But the French Revolution is one of these uh, periods that has never really captured my imagination. I've never been all that interested in it. I don't watch films about it. I don't generally read novels about it, even as I understand that the Scarlet Pimpernel is really important to like the history of superheroes <laughs> and comics and what we're doing here. Uh, I think Brandon would like for us to cover that. Uh, all as a team up someday, and perhaps we will. But doesn't normally appeal to me. Doesn't normally interest me. But Gaiman has really, I think, made this pop for me. Has really captured my imagination here, and uh, I just love it. He does so in very few pages. Um, and in fact, I do want to mention um, in the script there was initially plans for. Uh, another figure who was out and about uh, and actually just a few doors down from Payne at the time uh, in jail to also make an appearance in this issue, um, the Marquis de Sade, he decided there wasn't going to be room for him because he realized he was had only seven pages left to wrap up the story at one point and he had not even introduced him, uh, which is the reason why the Marquis de Sade does uh, get a reference in a later Sandman issue um, just because he had done some research for it. But uh, he he really kind of had uh, a wealth of people to choose from, of actual historical figures. And then he also dropped into that, you know, Morpheus uh, at a couple of points. And then uh, obviously throughout the story, uh, Lady Johanna Constant, uh, Tyne, uh, the character of his own creation. Yeah, and it's kind of a shame as well that the Scarlet Pimpernel doesn't actually make an appearance here. Although we do get some references to another figure here who is 
basically standing in for the Scarlet Pimpernel, that there is some agent who is attempting to help out aristocrats, help get them out of uh, out of Paris. And it turns out that that is the person who, at least according to rumor, has trained Johanna Constantine. So in some sense, she's kind of the the Robin to some other uh, early superhero here. And and that's actually a really great note. And presumably that's something that will get uh, will get taken up in the Hellblazer uh, special that we'll go go read in a few episodes. Or in this case, perhaps she's the uh, Nightwing, if you will, rather than the Raw. <laughs> right. I know you are on record on this very show of saying Nightwing is better than Batman. I don't know why I said Robin instead of Nightwing. I was unintentional. I, I mean, there are many great me. Robins, uh, but one of them, when they are able to spread their wings uh, and truly be a force unto themselves, um, then uh, Nightwing. Of course, you know. Not to throw shade on the Robins that do fine by themselves, but still, um, the one who no longer has to define himself so much as just companion of Batman. All right. Well, before we find ourselves being overthrown by a, a pro-Batman political faction here, I will bring <laughs> us to the end of this issue. We've got one more coda here to talk about, which is that Johanna takes Orpheus back to Greece, uh, specifically to the Aegean island of Naxos. And here, he is entrusted to the care of some priests. Uh, they're at a, a ruined temple, you know, an ancient Greek temple. But we're here really for some emotional closure to the story, of course. Orpheus tells Johanna that he knows that his mother Calliope will come visit him here, but he would really like it if his father, Dream, would do the same. And it turns out that he has not seen Dream in a long time, not even in his sleep. And he wants Johanna to agree with him that the fact that Dream had her come rescue him, come rescue Orpheus, means that Dream, his father, must still care about him. And that is really, really heartbreaking. I mean, this actually really had me tearing up here at the conclusion of this issue. But it also perhaps is not telling us anything we didn't already know about Dream. I mean, I don't think anyone out there was imagining that Dream would make you know a great parent or frankly, even make a mediocre parent, right? I mean, he's really failing at this. But what I'm interested in here, really, Brent, something I, I guess I have foreshadowed or even maybe just said rather plainly earlier, but what I'm interested in here in this scene is this business with the priests. And I, I wonder, do you think Gaiman is imagining that there is a secret enclave of pagan priests here on Naxos? Or or do you think that these priests are uh, something else, maybe? First, uh, Leslie Klinger's uh, annotations um, do give us a slight bit of information, though it doesn't quite answer your question, but let me interject that first, which is to say, Neil notes in the script that the legends he was consulted had Orpheus's head ending up on the island of Lesbos, um, and he changed it to Naxos um, just because he wanted to not have the association with the, the, the name Lesbos for the sake of the story. My guess is that we are to take it that if the gods are real, which we know from Season of Mists that they are, right, in various capacities, and Orpheus is a real thing, then why would there not be some kind of a cult that would protect Orpheus? Part of my headcanon, though, is that perhaps Morpheus may, you know, in his own way, if there's any, you know, uh, I use the word humanity for lack of something else here, um, <laughs> have anything to him, then he would want to make sure that his son was protected in some way. Um, and so perhaps he helps give dreams to uh, would-be members of this 
religious call to priests to protect him, or it could just be, you know, those who have encountering something of the divine in the actual head of Orpheus, maybe occasionally being having the glory of hearing even a snippet of song from the head. Uh, why would you not join a cult to protect it? Right. Um, it's kind of like you referenced Indiana Jones before Glenn. It's kind of like if, if there actually are these, you know, uh, Holy Grail and uh, Ark of the Covenant and a group asks if you would actually protect those things that you can see yourselves are actually part of the divine and not something else. Are you not going to sign up for that? Yeah, I like this reading. I like the idea that there are secret enclaves of actual pagan priests still still in operation. And I guess one of the things, I guess it's, well, I guess I don't know if we really know this in Sandman at this point, but certainly elsewhere in Gaiman's fiction, there is this idea that, you know, belief is what matters, right? And that gods or the power of of deities waxes and wanes depending on how many people, many mortals believe in that power. And yeah, I guess if Orpheus and Calliope are still going to exist, as well as the other Greek deities who, in Season of Mists, we learn are uh, uh, busy with their own internal politics. But if they still exist, it must mean that somewhere, someone is still believing in them in some way. I mean, conceivably, that's actually just means us, right? In the sense that these are figures in our culture, right? So that every time I read the the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid or the Metamorphoses again, that that is giving some kind of sustenance to, to them. But I, I think also it's fair to say that there must be some actual kind of veneration or worship still happening somewhere, that that's part of what Gaiman envisions. And here we have it, at least on the island of Naxos. And Gaiman doesn't give us to it, give us this in the script. And at this point, as opposed to the earlier issues of Sandman, where there's quite a bit of interweaving with kind of DC continuity, um, nonetheless, we're still supposed to interpret this as being kind of within DC sort of continuity. Um, this is actually after they've established the Vertigo imprint. So it's kind of a spinoff, but kind of not. But it is a world in which we have Wonder Woman, right? And we have Wonder right. Woman fighting with Ares. Like the actual Greek pantheon does exist. And we know in Season of Mists, there's a reference to the Greek pantheon and how they didn't show up in part because they were off dealing with other stuff because there was stuff going on in Wonder Woman continuity. He didn't want to deal with it. He was kind of annoyed at some of the continuity stuff he had to deal with when Dream first visited Hell, right? But in that context, like, of course, there'll be an island where there are happen to be priests because there's an island of Amazonians who are busy worshiping, you know, Greek gods as well. So, you know, it, it all kind of nicely fits in that, uh, in the headspace. Though the thing that struck me about this epilogue, as you mentioned, it's, it's very sad where Orpheus talks about, you know, whether how his father doesn't visit him even in his dreams. Um, and that's kind of very tragic, but then there's a, there's a kind of an echo of that, a mirror of that, if you will of then Johanna saying, I, I think I might visit you again. And Orpheus being like, no, that's not a very good idea. And Orpheus kind of shows a similar disregard for Johanna as a mortal, uh, the way that Morpheus somewhat does with mortals he interacts with, but also obviously there's not a, you know, father son relationship here, but still there's just kind of a, a lack of understanding of kind of what I take as an emotional blow that Johanna receives here to being rebuffed by Orpheus. That is not unsimilar to the way Orpheus feels being rebuffed by his father. 
I had the sense here that there was some romance going on that uh, in Johanna's mind, perhaps at this point, uh, all of this misadventure in Paris was really just their meet cute. And she's maybe interested <laughs> in, you know, getting some coffee sometime. And yeah, Orpheus is saying, I don't think that's a good idea. And there are lots of reasons why that might not be a good idea. One of them, he doesn't have a body, but the other being he's he's immortal, <laughs> she's not. But also this, I think perhaps is where Orpheus's background as a tragic widower matters, right? That he's still grieving over the loss uh, of Eurydice, the death of Eurydice, but then also his own failure at bringing her back to life when he was so close to succeeding, which was really just his own failure. It's just a huge mistake that he made. And he's still living with that, with that grief. And so I, I felt like he was telling her that really for uh, well, out of his own grief, but perhaps thinking that it's for her own good, that it's to protect her in some way. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. And I hadn't fully considered that, Glenn, but I think you're right in terms of the way he's reflecting on it. Um, from her standpoint, even though she covered her ears, she did still hear some of his beautiful song. And so I think she is just probably romantic or otherwise taken with him between all of all that she's been through to rescue him but then also having like heard this divine level of beauty um coming from him um must be somewhat intoxicating and so it makes sense why she would want to experience that again yeah, and she even tells us that in her journal entry where she says, I never did actually see him again in person, but we did meet in dreams from time to time. And I heard the song again in dreams, and I've never forgotten, you know, really hearing the song with my actual ears, that it's been this really significant part of her life, or at least it's made a really significant impression on on her. We don't know much more about that at this point. Maybe we will after we read the the Hellblazer special, but certainly, yeah, it's a profound experience for her. There was an interesting bit that I learned from the Sandman Companion by High Bender about this issue. Um, and it's from an interview that um, he had with Neil Gaiman about this story. Neil says, the only story I got f- caught flat-footed on was Thermidor. That's because DC was sending out information about its comics five months in advance to its, to its distributors and retailers. That was fine when I'd written an issue five months in advance, but sometimes I hadn't. So one day, Elisa Quitney rings me up and says, I'm writing the blurb for Sandman 29 now. And I say, oh yeah? And she says, what happens in it? And I say, I have no idea. I'm in the middle of Season of Mists. How do I know what I'm going to do afterward? And she says... Well, I have to write something, pick something. So I say, I know I want to do four stories dealing with the responsibilities of Kings about successful and unsuccessful emperors. And Elisa says, fine, pick one. (laughs) And Neil Gaiman says, so I say, okay, I'll start with a story about Lady Johanna Constantine and the French Revolution. I don't know why I chose that, but it was the only time I ever went, right, this is the story I will do. And then I had to go out and research it like a son of a bitch. I remember buying every book I could find on the subject, including Simon uh, Shama's Citizen, Citizens, A Chronicle of the French Revolution, and John Paxton's Companion to the French Revolution. I was reading Thomas Paine. I was reading the Marquis de Sade, who was in, in the same prison, only about four doors down from Paine, because I was sure I'd make it. Yeah, he'd make it into the story, but that didn't pan out. 
But I just thought it was fascinating of, you know, why did this issue fall here? And there's the answer. The issue is that he was in the middle of seasons of, of myths. Uh, Elisa Quitney dutifully doing her job as associate editor said, I need the blurb. And he had to on the spot be like, I think this is the concept that I want to go for in a mini arc that you and I will talk about more probably when we finish the arc. But in the meantime, more Johanna Constantine and French Revolution. Yeah, this is fantastic. I mean, this is the type of, of constraint that comes from serialized art that has serious business deadlines where you've and, and other types of constraints, right? Where you've got to get stories out. Because yeah, this four-issue arc that's called Distant Mirrors, that's reprinted here in Fables and Reflections. Of course, this is the, the distant mirrors is where the reflections comes in there in, in Fables and Reflections. But yeah, this four-issue arc about, well, yeah, old kings or old rulers, right, uh, is actually one of my favorite arcs. And the next issue that we're going to cover, at least in my memory anyway, though it has been a long time, is one of my absolute favorite issues. And I love hearing, I, I had no idea, so I loved hearing that it kind of just was something he invented on the lark because Elisa Quitney was pressuring him on the phone, <laughs> which I, I love. And of course, Elisa Quitney has her own Sandman podcast that she does with Lonnie Diane Rich called Endless, which is a, a phenomenal show that I recommend. Of course, Elisa has also been kind enough to uh, come on our show here and speak with me about a, a variety of things. And uh, uh, I can definitely hear her saying exactly that and um, <laughs> and, and not being able to, to and, and and I can definitely imagine Gaiman feeling pressure to give her an answer on the spot. Uh, I love that story. Hopefully she'll tell uh, her version of that uh, herself when uh, when they eventually cover this uh, this issue over on their own show as well. Yeah, I imagine that she will probably with more depth. Um, it'd be great to hear exactly what is going through her head about uh, trying to f- Get this out of him. But I like the idea that he's decided that, like, perhaps the reason why Orpheus is here just is because he real it was thinking about the French Revolution and Johanna Constantine and all of a sudden was like severed heads, severed. Oh, Orpheus. <laughs> That's my headcanon for, like, how that went, um, as opposed to starting from, hey, I want Orpheus to be there. Right. I think that's probably true as well now that you've presented this information from this conversation with Elisa. But that's not what I would have thought had happened. I would have thought the germination of this was, I'm going to tell a story about Orpheus because we're going to get more stories about Orpheus. Orpheus is going to be a really important person uh, in this story, which is you know, not not anything spoilery there. But yeah, I'm surprised to, to, to have learned that really it probably was the opposite. Well, we do have some more to say about this issue. We're going to have our conversation about the cover, the title, our favorite panel. We can talk about what we were listening to while we read this issue. But before we get to that, a brief message from our sponsor. Okay, we are back. So let's talk about the cover. I'll just describe this for people who don't have it in front of them. The uh, cover is a black and white drawing of a hand holding up a human head with lifeless eyes. There's also a green crescent over the head, you know, presumably a moon, but I guess you know, it could be something else. But I think you know the big question, right, Brent, is, is this head Orpheus? I think that it must be Orpheus. The Dust Covers collection by Dave McKeon here does not provide a lot of additional information, but it does mention a quote from Neil Gaiman where he mentions that in the printed cover of this, someone replaced at DC replaced Dave's painted crescent moon with a flat green set crescent. No one knows why to this day. And I don't know that honestly because of Neil Gaiman. I don't know if he's making a joke or... <laughs> 
<laughs> if there uh, was a version that just I was unable to find or see with the painted moon. But I figured this must be Orpheus's head that uh, in my mind is uh, Johanna Constantine's a hand that is holding it. Um, and we can talk a little bit about the green crescent uh, and what it might mean in the context of it. But uh, do you have thoughts on the black and white portions before we talk about green? Well, I guess something that we should say up front is that the covers for the Distant Mirrors arc are, I think, significantly different from the Dave McKean covers that we've had up to this point. And really, there have been differences you know, within the different runs or the different the different uh, story arcs, I should say, where Dave McKean has done different things. But this, to me, seems like the biggest departure from the type of cover art that we have had so far. Do you, do you think that's a fair assessment? No, I think that's a very fair assessment. We don't have the mixed media. We don't have... Uh... I don't want to make it sound like I mean busy, but I don't, there's not a lot of things necessarily going on here. Um, and just kind of the black and white sketch is not, this is not the, this is not the head of, of Lucifer when we've seen him in panel before. And there's a lot of just flashes of color here. We only have, and for a number of these comics, we have kind of like one or two kind of centerpieces of color, kind of accents that are thrown on top of what are otherwise kind of monochromatic surfaces think that the reason why it's the moon is probably because um, the distant mirrors, this is the first of the stories that we'll get to eventually uh, as they'll splay out uh, are all based on months in some way. And so I think because the months are not necessarily on a lunar cycle, but associated a little bit more with that, I think that's the reason why moon. Well, certainly I will, I will take that. And you have invoked months here, of course, being important in the titles of each of the issues in the Distant Mirror story arc. So yeah, let's talk about the title here. We've already talked about how Thermidor is the name for uh, late July and mid-August in this new calendar that was designed by the revolutionary government in the 1790s and you know what the impetus for designing this new calendar was. Really, this calendar, we should say, in addition to changing the months, it also instituted 10-day weeks because you know a decimal system is always best, I, I, I guess, right? Uh, and in fact, this is really when we get the move to a, a decimal system or a metric system, which has stuck and spread around the world for just about everything other than uh, measuring time, I guess, right? And, and there's probably good reasons for that. But yeah, that's what the, the title is here. But even though we know in hindsight now, right, that there all of the issues in this arc are going to have names that have something to do with months. I'm still surprised that this is the name of the issue rather than, you know, it's named for something to do with Orpheus. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, other than he ends up going with the months uh, eventually with this. So I guess that's probably the reason why. But, you know, if I had been a reader encountering this issue on the stand at first, Thermidor, I'd probably be thinking about a humidor. Um, I'd probably be thinking about temperature, which I guess gives me the July heat. And it also, I associate the French Revolution as kind of a, a, a sweaty, noxious affair. Um, <laughs> probably because I hate the, the hot weather, um, <laughs> in part. Um, and also because, you know, people, uh, being smelly and, uh, rot, um, of, uh, decapitated heads. But, um, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure where else there other than just it's it's a it's a thermidor is a word that brings you in uh, mainly because of one that doesn't mean much to most people. Yeah, it's certainly a cool word and it frankly might better describe 
mid-August and end of July than uh, July and August do themselves as words. So I don't know. I've, I've said it was a good idea that we didn't stick with this calendar system, but maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we should actually uh, adopt it. Well, uh, before I try to make a case for that, let's talk about some favorite panels. Brent, what was yours? Uh, my favorite panel is, and this is kind of a cheat because I'm not quite sure where the panel starts and ends, but it's on page 17. It's when Johanna is communicating with Morpheus in her dream. Um, we've already seen them standing by some kind of a waterfall that is red with blood, uh, perhaps the blood from the dreams of those encountering it in the streets uh, on the daily day daily basis in France. Um, but he is talking to her and he is reaching kind of from uh, into a pool and, and it almost looks cause it's like a three panel of his knee, but it's kind of a cheat because then he's reaching into a pool that looks as if it's, I mean, it's kind of one panel. You got to see it. Um, but it's, um, for those of you on the discord, I, I will take a photo and, and upload this when the issue goes up, but, uh, it's a great bit in which you can see him there, but you also see kind of his distorted visage then in the red pool, um, which makes him look far more nightmarish, probably intentionally than, than he does uh, otherwise. Uh, but then it's a wonderful image of her drinking from this cup so that she'll remember their conversation in the waking world. So here we have something that she is consuming in her dreams, which will help her remember these things. Um, and I'm sure this is intentional, but it also reminds me as if she's taking communion, she's holding the cup and drinking it as if she's drinking communion wine. Um, cause she is literally communing with a member of the endless here, right? Do you see what else is on this panel, Brent? Uh, or really on this page, I guess. It is actually perhaps its own panel, but it's the panel where we see Johanna sleeping. Uh, look out that window there. That's a crescent moon. So perhaps we have actually answered the question about <laughs> what the moon is doing in the cover. It's the same crescent moon there. And so perhaps really just the moon is just to let us know that, uh, you know, nighttime is when people sleep. Sleep is when people dream. This is a story, you know, it's a Sandman story. And uh, that's one of the things that's <laughs> happening here. So maybe it's less complicated than uh, than we tried to make it earlier. Well, my favorite panel was actually not this one, although I think that this is a fantastic choice. But I have chosen this stairwell that leads down to the room where the guillotine heads are stored. It's mm. this stone spiral staircase. I mean, it's clearly a few centuries old. And I just really like the atmosphere of that. But I also really like the angle and the perspective of this view. It's kind of a strange way to look down on the characters as they're talking. And it really made me feel like we, the readers, were actually present in this scene, present in this actual physical space as well. I really just enjoyed the perspective of it as well as the mood. So, Glenn, uh, we have a story about Orpheus. We have several refer references throughout the comic that you and I did not discuss about French revolutionary songs. Um, obviously there's lots of music about various revolutions in France that have been on stages throughout the world. Um, so was there something in particular though, that, uh, struck you? Was there a background music that you either had on while you were reading or that you ran to put on afterwards as you were thinking about the songs of Orpheus or about, uh, the French revolution, uh, good and mostly bad. Right. Well, as I have said uh, previously in, on this episode, I don't really care well that much for the French Revolution, but I do love Orpheus and have since I was an adolescent. And of course, 
everyone loves Orpheus. Orpheus is a massive figure in our culture. He's one of the most important figures of uh, antiquity in terms of art. You will see him in paintings and sculptures all over the place. But of course, because he is a musician, he's also really, really important in in music. And so there is a ton of music that is about Orpheus or incorporates Orpheus in some way. A lot of this dramatic music, so there are a lot of operas, a lot of ballets. I'm actually not here going to recommend my favorite piece about Orpheus, because I will save that for later when we get Orpheus again. But for this issue, I recommend Orpheus by Igor Stravinsky from 1948. This is a a short ballet about the life of Orpheus. Parts two and three of the ballet are really what are relevant to the material that we get uh, here in this story. It's really the the death and then also the apotheosis of Orpheus. Uh, Apotheosis meaning the um, becoming a god or becoming immortal uh, part of the Orpheus story. Stravinsky, of course, is famous for The Rite of Spring, which is another ballet. It's a ballet about human sacrifice. Uh, It's really a weird fiction story uh, done as a ballet. It is also notorious for being, uh, well, jarring, being terrifying, but also perhaps most notorious for causing a riot at its premiere. Uh, And that was in Paris, I will say. So there's also something, you know, Stravinsky-esque here going on in that we've got um, terrible things, several violent things happening in Paris. But at any rate, this piece, as opposed to the Rite of Spring, which is quite loud and jarring and terrifying, Orpheus here, Stravinsky's ballet, Orpheus, is quiet. Uh, In fact, I think it's rather sad, and it pairs nicely, I think, with the feelings that Orpheus is presenting on the last page of this issue here. And it's quite short. It's about 30 minutes long or so. Uh, So really kind of the perfect length for reading an issue. So that's my recommendation, Orpheus by Igor Stravinsky. And I think that's probably a good place to leave us. We can leave listeners to uh, go back, read the issue again, and listen to some Stravinsky. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. I want to remind listeners to please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia to uh, give a listen to our Swamp Thing bonus series. You'll also get access to the other hundred or so bonus episodes from across the network that we have up there on Patreon. We will be back next month with issue number 30, which is called August, which you can find in Fables and Reflections. And until then, pleasant dreams. Pleasant dreams.